0: Okay, everybody, we have a bit of a new format I'm testing today on This Week in Startups. You know, we've done three seasons of the next unicorns, and we had 30 amazing founders on. This is a series where we say, hey, this company's worth a couple of hundred million. Will they hit the billion dollar status? Let's make a bet. So we went through and we looked at the startups who came on the program and which ones actually became unicorns or didn't or got bought or got sold. And you're going to see a lot of throwback clips here. A couple of them are from... Uh, the pandemic era. So that's super interesting. Just as an aside, you'll get some commentary from me on what's going on in the industry with these specific companies that raised money in that peak market in 2021. And what that means for the founders now that we've gone from a peak of 13 year bull run down to what is inevitably going to be not only a recession, but it looks like a painful uh, extended recession that we're going to go into, I think, into the first half of 20. 23 and then just a little uh just a little dessert afterwards uh a little present for you we've got some ask jason segments at the end of the show just a little treat for you thanks so much for tuning into my podcast this week in startups really appreciate you enjoy the show stick with us
1: this week in startups is brought to you by open phone as a startup founder a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back but using your personal cell phone number as your company number isn't one of them. OpenPhone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team, right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.com twist to get 20% off your first six months. LinkedIn Marketing To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com nextunicorn unicorn. And Kalshi, Wall Street has always been able to profit from the outcome of elections. Now a company called Kalshi is changing that by bringing regulated prediction markets to the everyday person. Sign up at Kalshi.com slash twist and receive $25 after trading your first 100 contracts. That's Kalshi, K-A-L-S-H-I dot slash twist.
0: Hey, everybody, it's time for another episode of our next unicorn series here on this week in startups. What is the next unicorn series? Well, we created it a couple of years ago, and it was a way for us since we're in the startup community, since we're in the capital allocator venture capital community to say, hey, what companies are starting to look like they might become worth a billion dollars. When I started uh, in the industry 25 years ago, the idea that any company would become worth a billion dollars was crazy. And then uh, when I was an entrepreneur in you know, the 2000 to 2010 period is very rare for a company to become worth a billion or $2 billion. Now it's commonplace. Why is it commonplace that companies become worth a billion dollars? Is it irrational exuberance? No, sometimes we we do have that here in the valley. We saw that in the 2020 and 2021 period, in terms of funding of these companies, maybe many companies that aren't really unicorns became unicorns. But this billion dollar benchmark in terms of the value of the company typically means the company has 50 100 million dollars in revenue, and you know, some path to profitability. Well, if you think about it today, the internet is being used by billions of people, we have mobile phones, we have high speed mobile phones. And we have the rails in terms of payments for companies on a very short period of time to become global phenomenons, like we saw with Airbnb, Uber, uh, and other companies, Slack, these companies canva out of Australia, they can very quickly become a standard that is used by uh, consumers or businesses around the world. It used to be you spent a decade doing America, then you would go to Europe in your second decade, maybe you go to Asia in your third decade. So you saw a company like Microsoft take decades to to do this Oracle, etc. Now the playbooks out there. Uh, We saw it with Google going to every country in the world and starting a domestic search engine. Obviously, Facebook did that started on college campuses then went to all college campuses, then went to every country. And this playbook now has been run by many companies globalization plus high speed internet plus high speed internet in your pocket were the accelerants to this, of course, the embracing of advertising and subscription models companies like Stripe and Amazon Web Services have also allowed us as investors to invest in many more companies. If you invest in more companies, it's like giving a basketball to another billion people or a soccer ball to another billion uh, people in the world and saying, Hey, here's the rules. Here's a basketball court, here's a soccer field, go ahead and play you do that, you'll get many more Michael Jordans, you'll get many more Pele's or whoever, uh, you know, the top soccer player is today. And That is a wonderful thing for society. We have many more people trying to build companies. And that means we have more chances of people building a billion dollar company. And in fact, I think the new standard is kind of 10 billion. And that's what we're all looking to do as capital allocators invest when the company's worth 5 million to 500 million, and then watch it go to billions of dollars. And again, what does it take to be a billion dollar valuation for a company for the equity in the company to be worth a billion dollars, it takes, in my estimation, 50 to 150 million in revenue, and then some paths to profitability. So I thought we'd go back in time, we've now done three seasons, of the next unicorns. Each season, we pick 10 companies. Well, what if we look back over those three seasons and we check in on some of the companies? We thought this would be very instructive and a way for me to talk to you about those companies and what I think happened. So here we go. We're going to talk about uh, a number of the standout companies. Let's start in the first episode of the next unicorn series back in September of 2019. This was episode 971. Our first guest was Daniel Yanis, and he is the CEO and co founder of Checker. That's Checker without an E at the end, C H E C. Kr in plain English, they do enterprise software to allow people to do background checks. You can imagine if you're Uber, if you're DoorDash, uh, or any company that's hiring people, you may want to check uh, who you're hiring. And to have it as a service like AWS to do it cheaper, faster, better on demand was a brilliant idea. And they can do it for 55 bucks pretty amazing when you think about it and uh you know again the customer list includes obvious people like uber doordash but of course netflix right uh just different companies who want to check that i'm not hiring a felon or somebody who's been involved in a lawsuit whatever it is you might have some rules and in fact you know in society today we have in america such a small number of people who want to participate in the labor system that even if people have problems in their background companies are now thankfully, giving people a second chance, which is what we want in society, right? I think we can all agree on that. And so you just want to know so that when you hire the person, hey, if they did have some problems or challenges uh, previously, at least we know that we can have a candid conversation with the person. So it's not just about DQing people disqualifying them, it might be just also making informed decisions. uh, Because you know, somebody might have made a mistake that's really shouldn't preclude them from being a DoorDash driver. So When Daniel joined the show, uh, Checker had most recently raised a $100 million series C at a $900 million valuation. And so we didn't take too much of a risk here, if I'm being honest, and they only had to add 100 million to their valuation, just about 10%. Uh, And sure enough, shortly after they were on the program, they raised another 160 million in their series D hit $2.2 billion in market cap. And then in October 2021, the startup raised a $250 million series E now October 2021. That was the end of the party, the lights came on, the police showed up, mom and dad got back from vacation. And the party was over the market crashed the next quarter in q1. And uh, they really got that they snuck under the wire, I would say that $4.6 billion valuation, there would probably be half given today's market and that has no reflection on them. It just wasn't a crazy moment in time where a lot of big hedge funds and big money growth funds were competing to Put the last investment into these companies, and that last investment— who knows if that's going to be wind up being a good investment in the short term? It might take a little while to build into that valuation. But congratulations to the Checker team and Daniel. I'm talking about obviously, you know, just broadly about the about companies who raised during that time period. It's not specific to Checker. Who knows? Checker could be on such a tear that they've blown past that valuation already. Uh, but here's a quick clip of the highlights from that episode. Enjoy.
2: I came up with the idea for Checker because I uh, worked in other startups in the past. And so, especially in the gig economy, I was working in the early days of the gig economy before Uber and Lyft were at scale. And we needed to hire a lot of workers uh, to do deliveries. And the background check was one of the bottlenecks in the process Ah. to do a background checks. Um, I looked at the different options and I realized that there was a pretty antiquated archaic industry, more like service industry, not really the software uh, products available. And so that's how I got the idea. I was like, I think a lot of companies are going to need more background checks, more streamlined and automated background checks. I think that's an opportunity to disrupt uh, an industry that hasn't been touched by software. And so that's how we came up with Checker, which was the first um, API for background check.
0: How many of these background checks are you doing uh, every day, every month, every year?
2: We do a lot of them. We do about a million and a half a month.
0: A million and a half a month?
2: Yes. So we have millions th- of people going through
0: our system. Wow. And at $20 a pop, you guys are doing nine figures in revenue. Put you on the unicorn, almost a unicorn. You raised $100 million uh, in the latest round, is that right?
2: Yes, that's this right. This year? It was uh, last year.
0: Last year. As you start to get to nine figures in revenue, just founder to founder here, uh, and raise these large amounts of money, is there a pressure to go public now? And how do you think about the public markets in relation to what we saw with Slack, Uber, Spotify, Lyft, uh, going public recently? How do you think about it?
2: Yes, so um, we don't have a lot of pressure to go public because we're only a five-year-old company, which is you know quite uh, faster than, than maybe Five other. Five
0: years to two or 300 mm-hmm. a million though.
2: So that, that's fast growth. Um, our investors are also- are you doing, tripling revenue year over year? Not, not tripling, but we have high growth. Yeah, um,
0: more than doubling.
2: Yes. And um, our investors are long-term. So we definitely have investors that are long-term focused. They want to build a great large company um, that is defining its category and even expanding. We're thinking about expanding beyond background checks because background checks, we're already becoming the leader. I see a lot of opportunity in the gig economy and the future workforce
0: later in season one of the unicorns. Remember, again, this is back in 2019. I was joined by upgrade CEO and co founder Renaud Laplange. And uh, upgrade CEO was featured in episode 987. If you want to go back and see it, you can just go to our YouTube channel type this week in startups episode eight 987. And that was back in October of 2019. Now, upgrade was founded in 2016. It's a consumer credit platform that offers more affordable loans and lines of credit to consumers. And so upgrade also offers home auto and health focus rewards and provides educational tools to help customers better understand credit and debt. That's a place for you to get loans, basically. And the startups most recent round of funding before they came on the pod was a $62 million Series C at a $500 million valuation and that was back in August of 2018. So in order for them to become a unicorn, they would need to double their valuation and most recently upgrade raised a $280 million Series F at a $6.3 billion valuation. When did they do it? They did it in November of 2021. That was it. That's when the party ended. Uh, that was Q4 coming out of the pandemic and it was led by uh, DST Global. Uh, that's a 12X plus since they uh, joined the podcast. They, they've, they're they up 12X since they are on the podcast and Renaud is still the CEO uh, at Upgrade. Congratulations to him and the team. Here's a clip of highlights from that episode.
3: I'm an optimist. I wouldn't be an entrepreneur if I wasn't an optimist. Mm. Uh, I, but I really think that uh, collectively we are learning a lot. And I think they, uh, whether it's entrepreneurs or, or, or the investors, the VC communities, we've all learned a lot from uh, from the dot com bubble and and the burst and 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 then subsequent periods and um, I think many of us now are a lot more efficient mm-hmm. with with capital and and sometimes yes there are some uh, uh, there's like too much uh money getting put into, pushed into the system um, and uh, and that creates uh, companies like like we work uh, that feel like they can raise unlimited amount of money and therefore can run very large losses for for a very long time. Uh, But I think it's not the majority of entrepreneurs. I think the very vast majority of entrepreneurs are running pretty efficient operations. They're raising capital for good reasons, to Mm. try new things, to innovate, to bring products into the world that did not existed before.
0: Would you take the big money? Because listen, you've raised a lot of money, over 50 million, I believe. But you seem like a reasonable person. Would you want to take that billion dollar check from him or 500 million dollar check from Masayoshi-san and the Vision Fund, knowing what you know now and the history you've had, or would you be reticent to take that money knowing that it comes with such outlandish expectations?
3: yeah I think the um I mean too much having too much there, there's such a thing as having too much capital and too so much so you money. wouldn't take it um if you I, offered five hundred million right I, now I wouldn't at the current stage because I have no efficient way to use five hundred million right now
0: right, yeah. but if you came with a hundred, maybe we open a dialogue
3: I mean we've raised one hundred fifty million with've upgraded right. already so yeah we're i mean we're and we I think we're using that capital efficiently again to create new products right. launch new products and and bring products into the world that are designed to solve. Big issues.
0: On the program today is Darina Kulya. She is the founder of OpenPhone. Welcome to the show, Darina.
1: Thank you so much, Jason. Great to be here.
0: You know, I've read the ads a couple times here. It seems like you're charging too little for this product. It's ten bucks a month per number. How are you able to do this so affordably? One hundred twenty bucks a year, one hundred fifty bucks a year per person is nothing.
1: So we are a very self serve product, which is why uh, many of our competitors offer much more expensive is that they rely on like a customer success rep or someone help you out to set things up. Uh, We are very self-serve now. We do have customer success managers who are amazing. A lot of our customers are founders and startups. They like things to just work without instructions, without... Yeah,
0: they'll read the manual. They'll watch the videos. They don't want to talk to a human. They just want to set it up and go. And you made the product so simple.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's where the cost savings comes in. You don't have to have a sales team going out there selling it.
1: And you know, the other big thing is that the way we also grow, and I think, it, you know, the way we get a lot of customers is that... Uh, we have very strong word of mouth and people like tell others about us. And I mean, all of that contributes our business model kind of makes sen- it makes sense for us to be able to to offer it at a very good price. All right,
0: everybody, here's your CTA the old call to action twist listeners 20% off any plan for your first six months, just sign up at openphone.com slash twist. And if you got an existing number, no problem, they'll put it right over. Openphone.com slash twist, O P E N P H O N E e.com slash twist today for 20% off. Later in that first season in 2019, we had Expanse CEO and co founder Tim Junio on the show. Now, Tim joined uh, the show on episode 992 in October of 2019. Expanse is uh, a cybersecurity startup, basically. It was founded in 2013. They provide IT and security teams with visibility into uh, basically internet attack services. What does that mean? You got a bunch of stuff connected to the internet, could be your employees, computers, laptops, phones, servers, it could be your door, it could be your door key card readers, it could be cameras, any of that stuff. Uh, And you need to use software to figure out if you're being attacked. And the software that comes native into each of these platforms may not do a great job. So there's a whole business in looking at the surface area of attacks for any corporation. And as you add IoT devices, internet of things to your company, Uh, or you give your employees more devices, iPads, whatever. That's how these break-ins happen. That's why sometimes a company, uh, as we saw with Twitter, Uh, lost a bunch of corporate information, they got hacked, and it caused a a lot of problems for them. Uh, It's typically they're not using enough software to reduce the surface area of attacks or minimize the surface area attacks or even find out about them in time to stop them. At the time, Expanse had recently raised a $70 million Series C at a $500 million valuation. And just over a year after joining the podcast, Tim sold his company to Palo Alto Networks, and they paid uh, around 800 million in the form of cash, stock and what's called equity awards. You're probably asking what's an equity award. Well, you want to keep people around right and uh, we saw this with Figma just getting bought by Adobe when you buy a company, you don't want people leaving because they have all that cash and they just want to go buy a house in Kauai and chill. You want them at the company working and you want to make sure that acquisition is successful. So they will put the golden handcuffs on you in the form of equity awards. The equity awards could be based on time they could be based on performance they could be based on revenue any number of things. uh, And usually it's a combination. So they'll say, Hey, listen, the management team's got to stick around. We're going to vest your, uh, you know, we're gonna give you these equity awards over the next four years. And if revenue hits these targets, you get, you know, double. So a great way to keep people engaged, didn't quite hit unicorn status. But I'm going to say close enough, they probably sold close to the top of the market. He can't time these things as founders, can you? Uh, There's an expression we have in here in Silicon Valley, great companies are bought, they're not sold. So what happened here is they were probably on a tear. Palo Alto networks looked at it said, Hey, this company's got 50 million, 40 million, whatever it had in revenue, 80 million. Uh, We have a thesis that we could 10x that revenue, let's take it out before they go public. Let's take it out before other people find out about it. And so For the people who invested at a $500 million valuations who did that Series C, it's kind of a bummer, right, because they barely doubled their money, unless in the documents, there was a minimum return for them. And I suspect there was depends on the terms depend on the investor, but they can put in the documents, hey, we get a minimum of twice our money back. So let's talk about what that means. They put in 70 million at this $500 million valuation, you know, and that gets them a certain percentage of the company, um, you know, 12 13%, whatever it is. So, they have that percentage. Now, they sell the company for 800 million. Okay, that's like 60% more than they invested. So, you would think their 70 million would be worth 60% more, or roughly just over 100 million. Well, they could put in the documents, we'll invest the 70 million, but we get a liquidation preference. We get participating preferred, some uh, note in the document. It can be structured a couple of different ways, but we want at least twice our money back. If that happened, then 140 million double the 70 million would come off the top of the 800 million. And then people would split it after that or they might get 70 million off the top, there'd be 730 left. And then they would get their whatever 13 or 14%, depending on uh, the equity and how much the employees got. So this happens, it's part of the game in Silicon Valley as investors, sometimes you have a quick sale. And that investor who put the 70 million in, they probably didn't have the right to stop the sale, so this is where something called protective provisions comes in for companies and for venture capitalists. When we invest in companies, we get preferred shares, and then the board has to vote: Are we going to do this? And you might have a blocker. So this investor obviously did not have a blocker, or they had uh, a ratchet where they got the full ratchet. I mean, they got double their money. And so they didn't need the blocker. And these are the late stage nuances of deal making. Sometimes a founder really wants to get a high valuation, they give them the high valuation, they give her the high valuation, they give the team the high valuation. But they say, Hey, listen, you get the high valuation, but we want at least double our money back, knowing that something like this could happen. And this is going to have a dramatic impact on the market now because not for this company, but because you had all these high valuations in 2021, that might be down 60 70 80%. There's no hope for them to get back above that, there would be no hope for them to get above the hurdle. This creates a very dysfunctional case. And some of those documents from what I understand, from people who are deep in the game, did not have protective provisions, not this company, I'm just talking about the industry writ large. There's a lot of uh, companies that had many offers, late stage companies, and they just told people, we're not going to give you those terms. And so depending on how hot the market is, some late stage VCs may, in fact, waive those rights. Who knows? Maybe in this case, they wanted the deal so much they waived the right and then they got dragged along and they only made 50, 60% on their money, which, you know, it's good work if you can get it. I mean, if you think about it, they made that 50% in one year. So they didn't have to wait five or 10 years. So they didn't make it to unicorn status. Sorry, uh, but good enough in my book. Congratulations to the team. According to LinkedIn, Tim's uh, an SVP of product at Palo Alto Networks. I give them four years. It's typically what happens in these acquisitions. You get the golden handcuffs for four years. They make you vest some shares. And when you're ready to do your next startup, Tim, call J Cal, save me a tiny little slice. You know, I always tell people, if you order pizza, I love it, you know, get two pies and save, save your boy J Cal a slice, maybe two. You know, I'll take a pepperoni, whatever it is. I'll take a half a slice if I'm being honest in a founder like Tim's companies. Uh, he's a killer. So we had a great talk about uh, conversations around the threats from Russia and China for American companies. Check out this amazing clip. In uh-
4: place like China, they could infiltrate even private companies with Mm -hmm. people from intelligence and security services to try and get access. So part of how to look at Chinese internet companies and why they're risky to American society and American business is we can't have the assurance that even if the leadership of the company doesn't want to conspire with the Chinese government, they may still be penetrated in a way that is incredibly difficult for them to detect and know about. And you have to think about that for all of time. I'm going forward. So even if today, TikTok is totally fine, has nothing going on with the government, super secure. Same with Huawei, pick any of these companies, who knows five years, 10 years, how that relationship with their government is going to evolve and whether or not they already have embedded employees of the company who are on the payroll and recognize they have corruption issues beyond all of these internet security issues. So if you just paid somebody a hundred bucks a month or whatever, can you get them to walk out with a thumb? drive that contains sensitive customer data, I would bet a lot on the answer being over 80 or 90% that there's somebody there who can get you asymmetric information access.
0: Hey, everybody, I'm here with my pal Tom Eschbacher. He is the Senior Sales Manager at LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. And today, we're going to talk about marketing for startups. And LinkedIn did a great new internal report called today in Startup Marketing. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thanks, Jason. One of the main topics covered in the report is validating product market fit, that's so essential. So how does marketing play a role in validating PMF? One of the challenges from the pandemic was it disrupted normal feedback loops that startups get, and particularly
5: when trying to scale assumptions based on small sample sizes. You can't go to conferences anymore, you can't do events. And so we've seen a clever adoption of LinkedIn's free analytics tools here. And one that's become table stakes, and I mean 92% of series A startups are using it, is the LinkedIn insight tag. A feature here is the website demographics functionality that provides a valuable view on your site visitors' professional attributes. What's their job function, their seniority level, what company are they at, the industry, the company size. This is all a bunch of actionable insight that you can use to back up your instincts around who
0: your addressable market is and help inform early marketing strategies. Rethink your B2B marketing on LinkedIn ads and get $100 credit on your next campaign. I kid you not, a hundred coming to you in free advertising and marketing. Go to linkedin.com slash next unicorn to get $100 off again, linkedin.com slash next unicorn for $100 off of course terms and conditions do apply because they're giving you a hundy. Okay, and to wrap up season one, we had Benchling CEO and co founder Saji Wikrama Rama uh, I can't believe I pronounced that correctly on the podcast. My dyslexia is going crazy right now. It's Interesting. Sometimes I get the really hard names correct. And the shorter ones I have a harder time with Benchling was founded back in 2012. And they sell cloud software to biotech research and development sounds really boring and sounds really profitable to me. Benchling's last round before joining the show on episode 998 back in November of 2019 was a $34 million Series C that was back in July 2019 at a $415 million valuation. Since then, they've gone on to raise 350 million more dollars across three more rounds of funding. Most recently, they raised $100 million Series F at a $6 billion valuation co led by my friend Brad Gerstner, uh, the fifth beetle, the fifth bestie on all in from Altimeter Capital and Franklin, Franklin Templeton. So congratulations to Brad, Franklin Templeton, and everybody else involved in this amazing company. It's a 14x valuation step up since joining the next unicorns. So what you're seeing here is if you come on the next unicorns, you're going to sell your company where you're going to go up at least five to 15x. Uh, no, we're good at picking companies. We did a good job. Now we didn't talk about all the companies here today but we plan on doing at thisweekinstartups.com/unicorns uh, we're going to do some statistics on all 30 companies and look at our track record in terms of these and it's making me wonder maybe i should start a late stage fund here is saji
5: Software was this incredibly collaborative thing. If I wanted to work with a team of engineers who might be distributed all around the world, I had the tools to do so to collaborate on code effectively. And if something about the process of building software sucks, well, you're a software engineer. Make some tools. And if they're good, people will use them. And the industry gets faster, better, cheaper, easier, you know, every year. And more people get to participate in it. Exactly. And if I were to compare that to scientists, now, scientists will really push the envelope when it comes to the the methods and the techniques they use in the lab for doing science. The design of the experiment. Yes, exactly. Things like CRISPR. Right. Those are amazing step functions that have, you know, come out since I was in the lab, you know. And they're wonderful and move science forward in a breakthrough type way, but more or less the way everyone works together in life sciences is based on paper, email, spreadsheets.
0: So literally they're in Excel spreadsheets, typing information. Yep. There
5: are paper lab notebooks at oof. every biotech ac- you know, company, academic lab, and those notebooks just sit there and collect dust. Huh. Um, and so these are really, really important problems they're working on, and they're doing it with pretty lame tools. And so the complexity of the scientific work has gone up so much, and so the tools haven't kept pace.
0: So if I were to describe uh, the tool at uh, Benchling, would it be Google Docs for researchers? Uh, would it be a Salesforce CRM or Slack for researchers? How would you describe it in a way that we would understand?
5: Yeah, uh, actually, a lot of those metaphors are pretty good. There are yeah. elements of all those different types of tools that that we have. Um, the thing though, is that we are we built them in a way that is specific to the life sciences. Got it. And so we have applications that help we have a suite of applications. They're all unified. So if you're a scientist, you just get to use one tool to do your job. You're not mm. jumping between 10 different Got things.
0: It. So it's like a suite, like the office suite. It is. Word, Excel. Exactly. PowerPoint. Except Word
5: and Excel, in this case, they're going to talk to one another. Got it. So you have Tools to design your experiments, tools to document them, tools to track all the materials being produced, both logical tracking, so think how you like model all the different stuff you're building and how it relates to one another. Yeah. And then physical tracking, so like the supply chain of where all my tubes ah, and how much volume cool. is in them. So it's
0: like a project manager and instead of just dumping it all in Excel, you've got like a proper project management and, yes. and product. Then, yeah,
5: And then workflow tools to so how you can place requests ah. to your fellow scientists and how you can hand off experiments from one team to another.
0: All right now let's go to season two of the next unicorns we kicked off with the legend in ed tech, uh, Daphne Kohler. Now she uh, was the co founder of Coursera. If you're in college or you're into taking college courses, you know, Coursera, she joined us to talk about her new startup in Citro back in July of 2020. Now they're a drug discovery startup that uses machine learning models to make drug development faster and better. This is a really important space drug discovery takes a long time, and it's very expensive. And, uh, you know, how accurate it is, uh, you know, obviously, um, is important. By using machine learning, they can kind of get a a hint of where uh, drugs might work better. And this is an ongoing thing we're seeing inside of the biotech space machine learning, big data sets to figure out models as to which drug should be made next, which compounds, you know, uh, and, and what the interactions would be. Really fascinating. Uh, Daphne found it in Citro in 2018. And this is like, you know, crazy long ball high risk investing to do these kind of companies, right? Prior to joining the podcast on episode 1092, they had raised $143 million in their series B at a $623 million valuation by Ben Horowitz and uh, Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z. Since then, they did a $400 million series C at a $2.5 billion valuation in April of 2021. Again, getting into that 2021 bonanza, uh, when capital was flowing freely for big companies, uh, the thesis being, hey, listen, you could never bet enough money on a winner. This was the common the common philosophy the last decade in Silicon Valley, you cannot overpay for a winner. Now let's let that sink in. Uh, if you've seen Peloton stock or zooms, or door you can overpay for a winner. Uh, those companies are all winners in my book, great products, great services. But oh my lord, their stocks have been creamed. And I think in some cases they're trading below their private market valuations. This is a very unique thing that I've never seen in the history of Silicon Valley. I'm sure it happened during the dot com boom as well, uh, but I don't remember it happening at this scale. Essentially, private investors putting money into a company and then the company being worth less as a public market company. It's not supposed to happen that way, but we've seen that. Peloton would be the most shocking version of it, I think. But yeah, that's a 4x step up for Daphne uh, and in Citro. So congratulations to them. Really great team over there really important work. And and this is when Silicon Valley is at its best. When we take these amazing advances in technology, machine learning, and obviously artificial intelligence uh, is the the wider umbrella and machine learning is part of that and big data, you know, we've been able to store all this data. Uh, because of servers and cloud computing and the advances, uh, Moore's law, we able to process this stuff, the chips, all of this stuff is coalesced to make things like this possible. Here's some highlights from Daphne's episode.
6: So this is something that's fascinated me for about 20 years now, but it was always really hard to do that uh, because data collection in biology involved weeks, months of wet lab experimentation uh, by people sitting there and pipetting and moving liquids from one tube to the other. And, And so if you got a handful of data points, you felt lucky. And now that world has changed and we are in a position where there has been a set of tools that have been developed by bioengineers and cell biologists that all of a sudden... Give us the opportunity to measure biology at unprecedented fidelity and scale. And that is just an incredible opportunity for people to bring that suite of tools together with tools from machine learning and data science to solve problems that are at the core of society, at the core of making the world a better place. I think there is opportunities like that across multiple domains. I think it could transform agriculture and crop growing it can transform the environment in in allowing us to create organisms that clean up our oceans for instance and importantly from what i want to do it allows us to understand and transform human health by making better Drugs that help us deal with diseases that are currently um, intractable and cause tremendous amounts of pain and suffering and death because we haven't had the tools to really probe into the biology and figure out how to fix them. And that's really what we hope to do at Citro.
0: All right, listen, if you know anything about me, I like to place a bet once in a while, a friendly wager. And one of the most interesting platforms I've seen in the space is Kalshi, K-A-L-S-H-I, Kalshi. This is a regulated exchange that offers financial prediction markets on everyday events. They've created a new asset class. It's called event contracts. The contracts let you trade on specific events. You know, we've been talking about CPI here and inflation, the print. On all in, on this weekend startups? Well, you can place a bet essentially on what next month's CPI will be, or whether specific legislation will pass, or what global temperatures will look like at the end of the year. Now, why would you place these? Well, these might be important hedges for you. So here's how it works on Calshi, you earn $1 for every correct position you own at the market's close. For example, if you have 10 yeses in a market, you'll receive $10 when the market settles if the outcome is yes. You can also sell your contracts before the market closes if you are already in the money. If you're watching uh, the video version, you can see one of the hottest markets on October 18th. This is yesterday, which was the upcoming October CPI print. The current forecast is 0.6 higher than September's print. So you can see how the contracts get cheaper, the higher you go. I want you to know this is a federally regulated exchange. Sign up at calchi.com slash twist to receive $25 after trading 100 contracts. That's right, they're gonna give you 25 bucks for trading 100 contracts. I'll be on their trading as well. K-A-L-S-H-I.com slash twist. Okay, later in season two, we had Cockroach Labs co-founder and CEO Spencer Kimball join the show. That was episode 1098 in 2020, August of 2020. Uh, That was right in the middle of the pandemic, huh? It's kind of scary times. If you remember that that's when we were talking about Oh my god, the election is coming up. Will we get the Trump vaccine vaccine came after the election and was all that was the summer of the vaccine. When are we going to get it just as a little time capsule here? We were talking about outdoor dining. Remember that when we could all leave our houses and they were going to let us eat at diners outside. Oh my god so risque, Uh, but also felt so great to be alive when you when you first went out to a restaurant, you felt so great that they were going to make you food after just a couple of months before being on your doorstep wiping groceries with a mask on and just scared to death that you were going to get this crazy virus. And Oh, Lord, we've come a long way since then. So Uh, They make cockroach DB, which is an open source cloud SQL database. Basically, it helps companies and apps scale faster, be more resilient. uh, And, you know, databases latency is really important. How quickly can you query the database? Uh, This is a competitor to stuff like Oracle, you know, um, other database companies. The last round before Spencer joined the show was an 86 million dollar series D at an 800 almost 900 million dollar valuation. Since then, they've raised two more rounds of funding. Uh, They did a series F at a $5 billion valuation in December of 2021. uh, Just a little more than a year after being on the show. Uh, So their customers include Comcast, Hard Rock and All Saints 5x plus valuation step up since joining the podcast. Let's roll the clips. I'm gonna break it into two questions. Talk about serverless, explain to the audience what that is and why that's important to people. And then explain what what do we look like in twenty thirty five? I'm just going to pick fifteen years from now.
7: It's certainly, it's going to become immeasurably larger. I mean, things. It's not just that everyone's moving onto the cloud. And I was mentioning those global two thousand. That tipping point's already happened in the last couple of years. Now they're like every one of these companies is buying a hundred million or hundred billion. Sorry, hundred million in in credits over the next four years or something. You're like tripping over those kinds of deals. So that is already happening, and that's just re- represents non organic growth in the cloud market. I mean, it's going to be getting you know up there in the hundreds of billions in the you know maybe even close to the trillion dollar mark you know over the next 10 years crazy Uh, and uh but it's also it's not just those companies inorganically moving their spend to the cloud it's also that you can do things faster with the cloud and that's really where serverless comes in you can iterate faster you can deliver more services more applications to your end users that's how you compete whatever vertical you're in let's say you're in financial services like it used to take know, uh, months just to get machines into some private data center that you could use uh, yeah. for what, what something you were going to launch just months. Now you can get those things in minutes, maybe even seconds, especially when you're using orchestration technologies like Kubernetes and things like that. What serverless fundamentally is, is it's, it's abstracting all of the deployment, all the work that has to be done around deployment from the equation. And they're saying, okay, we're going to do this deployment DevOps monitoring, keeping all your services up, maybe some auto scaling type stuff, we're gonna do all that for you. And all you're gonna do is pay for uh, pay us, right. And so uh, the total cost of ownership is going to be lower, you might be paying us uh, a bit more than if you did it yourself. But that's not counting all of the expertise that you have to hire into your company to run that, right?
0: Then to wrap up season two of the next unicorns, we had a product that we actually use all the time here at launch. Joe Thomas is the CEO and co-founder of Loom. They sell uh, basically SaaS software. It lets you do audio snippets, video snippets on top of your screen. So you could do a little screencast. You've probably seen Looms. So a lot of salespeople use it. Some product managers will do it when they're sending a new version of a product it's picture in a picture, you got a, it's almost like pop up videos, you got a little video on the bottom right, it's in a circle. Hey, uh, my name's Joe, I want to sell you some SaaS software, yada, yada, let me walk you through it. Great to meet you, Jane, blah, 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 I read your LinkedIn, your kids go to school here, whatever, you know, the nonsense, these looms are really easy for people to create. And they're actually really, really effective, because they're customized, and they're fast. So people working from home can do a very quick walkthrough of a product, they don't need to to know how to do video editing. Previously, this software would have taken Okay, I've got to record my screen. Okay, now I got to record a video of myself. Okay, now I got to sync it. I mean, it would have taken hours to make these videos now, you know, with tools like Lumen, there's many competitors, uh, it's built into some other products out there. Now, um, you can just very easily make short walkthroughs and videos combining desktop, walking through a presentation a, a PowerPoint or whatever it happens to be. Um, amazing for onboarding new hires, all that kind of stuff. That's what we use it for. We walk them through like, Hey, welcome to the company. Here's what you need to know. They were founded in 2016. Joe was on the show in September of 2020. And at the time, the company had just raised their series B $29 million at a $321 million valuation, Sequoia and co Two, two amazing firms, Sequoia being the most legendary firm and successful firm in the history of Silicon Valley. They've raised more money since uh, in May of 2021. $130 million Series C at a $1.4 billion pre-money valuation led by Andreessen Horowitz coming after Sequoia. Hmm. And so that's a 4x boost since being on the show. Clearly the show correlates with success or our ability to pick the companies perhaps. Let's check out this quick clip from Joe back in 2020. How did that fundraising process work broad strokes in a pandemic?
8: I mean, you you know Silicon Valley. When you tell one person that you're fundraising, the whole ecosystem knows. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is weird. Yeah, we we had told, um, we had talked to the board internally and just let them know that we were thinking about this. Uh, And then from there, we had been building relationships. I think one of the most important things for founders to do that I learned in the early days is be building relationships in between rounds. Do not try and like cold start any relationship when you're going out to raise a round. And so. There was a short list of investors that we potentially wanted to work with, and it was starting to get to be uh, at the valuation that we were targeting in that kind of more growth stage investor territory. And so I had reached out to a short list. We did all of the meetings remote. I actually said it was by far the most efficient round that I've ever raised because I was actually able to get a material amount of work done during it.
0: You're going to get this question about defensibility all the time.
8: I could give the stock answer for you, but I want to hear how you answer it. How I always answered it is the fact that you have to believe, and what I think we did a really good job of is picking early investors that believe that this is a missing mode of communication at work. Like This is a massive opportunity, and in order to get this right, you just have to focus on building a best-in-class product and that takes disproportionate resource allocation to our video infrastructure is the most performant that exists for any asynchronous video recording and sharing. And then the second part of defensibility, if you have a best in class product, is you need to build a best in class brand around the product as well. So do, do folks look to you as being the thought leaders and the next kind of brand to trust. And then the third part of this is there could be death by thousand paper cuts, but usually there's one or two winners in a space. and the win- one or two winners, particularly in B2B SaaS, are those that can serve the larger organizations. And so if we can be the market creators and market leaders in this space, then we can start to grab the biggest customers in the world. And as long as you grab those, there's pretty high switching costs. Like the, It has to be a 10x better solution for a new entry to come in and steal the material market share from Loom. And so the question that we had to answer was less about kind of like the small upstarts that are copying us, uh, which now we've kind of created an ecosystem below us that there will probably be more and more over time and more about how do we make sure that we're not just a feature and that we're truly a product Uh. and independent business.
0: Okay, listen, season three, we just did it, but I wanted to point out one of my favorites. Uh, As fans of uh, This Week in Startups and All In, you probably know, we're big fans of uh, Adina Hefetz. She is the CEO of Divi Homes. She spoke at the All In Summit. They provide an on ramp to home ownership. Really clever idea. The person finds a home, then they start renting it. Divi buys it, and then you rent to buy. So you only have to pay one to 2% upfront. Divi pays the rest. And the person pays the monthly rent, but 25% is put aside towards savings that could be used the future purchase of the home basically rent to buy, right? But Adina, uh, with this very clever idea gets to have individuals really care about the home they're buying. So this makes the renters care about the home, they're going to take better care of it, right? Because they have a chance to buy it. She uh, joined the show episode 1246. My god, I've done a lot of episodes of this week in startups, it really just goes to show you if you do something for a decade, hopefully you get good at it. Hopefully you have a fun time and and the numbers go up. Uh, before she joined the podcast, company was valued at uh, 490 million. And she had raised $110 million in 2021. Then in October of 2021, less than a year after raising that uh, 110 million, she raised a $200 million Series D at a $2 billion valuation, co led by caffeinated capital and tiger global. I've talked about tiger global co 2 those were some of those late stage firms who had the philosophy you can never overpay for a winner. Now, a is a winner. I know that hopefully Divi is a huge winner. But this is a very extraordinary valuation run up. Let's get into it. Those funds are going to have a little bit of a challenge uh, depends on their time horizon, of course, and how well they picked. So while they might be down now, it only takes one big winner, uh, don't I know it to fix a portfolio or, or to make you legendary in the capital allocation business. So I'm rooting for Tiger Global Co. Two and those folks who came in and, and made those big bets that they, they do wind up having a winner. And who knows, Divi could be that winner for them. But let's let that sink in a three and a half times valuation step up from February of 2021 to October of 2021. February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October nine months to add $1.3 billion to your valuation. That means in nine months over $100 million in valuation was increased per month, it means over three or $4 million a day in valuation were added doesn't make a lot of sense, does it that a company would add uh, all due respect to Adina and her amazing team? It doesn't make a lot of sense uh, that you would add that much valuation, you would really have to be uh, growing revenues at a big pace. But you know, people got very excited about tech in 2021. And there was a lot of free money in the system. We printed a lot more money. And we're all now in 2022 digesting that for the smart founders like Adina and other ones who raise at that uh, high number they just got to work it out. They got to just put that money to work slowly, make it last, get through this recession. And uh, if you have that amount of money, you'll get through to the other side. So congratulations to her and the team. And uh, she's since been on this week in startups. And uh, again, she was a great speaker at the all in summit. So let's take uh, a moment for a quick snippet from Medina from her original next unicorns interview from season three. How did you come up with this idea? And then how many homes have you bought on behalf of your renters?
9: Sure. Yeah. So when I came up with the idea for Divi, it was really based on a couple of things personal experience and then understanding the market. Uh, from the market side, let's start with that. Um, I saw that we had just made it out of the global financial crisis. If you looked at the rates of home ownership, they were at all time lows. And I thought, you know, people can't get mortgages. There has to be another option that we can offer them, and so wanted to figure out a way in which people could buy into the equity of homes, uh, without taking on a massive amount of risk from a credit lending perspective. And so, making them into a renter, letting them buy into the equity, sharing in the appreciation, seemed to be a good idea as a way to start. And then, more on the personal side, um, my my parents, myself, m- I I couldn't get a mortgage. My dad, when he had immigrated to the U.S., couldn't get a mortgage. Um, him and my mom had actually just gotten married, just got pregnant, and they were looking for a house, couldn't find one. Um, And and then ultimately, they found a lovely woman who was willing to give them seller financing on a home. And that house became my family's sole source of savings and wealth. And eventually, my dad had a credit score, refinanced that house with a mortgage and was able to take cash out and use that to pay for, for me and my three siblings to go to college. And I always just thought that in Silicon Valley, CEOs had to be like, Elon Musk, like visionary, like we're going to Mars, like big Mm -hmm. picture and not me. To me, I was a worker bee. Like I did my models. I was very organized. Mm -hmm. I was diligent. I prepared for like my slides for every meeting. I did not think that was the stuff of a CEO. I -hmm. thought I had to be a bigger picture thinker. And what's actually amazing is having founded Divi now, I realized that there's a lot of different types of CEOs at different points in time. The person who I was for the last three years founding Divi is not the person I'm going to be for the next three years. And there is no right or wrong, but more the right fit for the company at a particular time.
0: Okay, here's a question from my mom, apparently. <laughs> what are some of the unlocks for 2023 that could help founders? Uh, for example, mobile phone adoption, the 2008 2009 experience, uh, 2009. Uh, now that is not actually my mom it was somebody in the chat room who <laughs> claimed to be mom. Uh, great, great uh, question. I think the why now of 2023 is going to be AI and machine learning. Now, that was the why now a number of years ago, but it's actually now coming to fruition. So why is that happening? Well, it used to take a lot of people and there weren't a lot of a lot of open source projects or software to build on. And there wasn't a big talent pool. So the number of people who could actually write code and who understand artificial intelligence and machine learning was very small. In fact, it was dozens, then hundreds. And now it's 1000s to 10s of 1000s of people understand how to use this software. And it's pretty easy to learn. So you can just go to MIT and watch their machine learning AI courses or Stanford, they're all up there in public, all the tools are out there. So I believe that the next year or two in startup land is going to be developers and founders, you know, playing with AI tools, computer vision, uh, machine learning, and they're not going to do projects like, well, let me see if I can beat chess, but uh, they might do projects that are, hey, let me see if I can tell you which company your salesperson should call next to sell SaaS software to, right? Or I'm going to tell you which story uh, you should write next as a journalist, uh, or I'm going to find you. Um, who I think the great next chef is going to be by or influencer by analyzing what's going on on tiktok right different ways to train AI to solve problems that were being done brute force, or maybe with a uh, you know, some some rudimentary tools. And that's going to be very exciting. Because if people can solve problems, instead of in five hours and do it in five minutes, like we're seeing just when people use Dolly to make a, a beautiful image or a beautiful logo. And maybe that logo took, you know, used to take 10 weeks. I use this example a lot because logos used to cost five $10,000 for a startup, then you could hire somebody, you know, maybe offshore, uh, working from home for 50 to $500 to do a logo. Now, a founder, Uh, any civilian is going to be able to open up and and somebody should make this I would fund it. If somebody made an AI toolkit just to make logos and come up with brand names, people would pay hundreds of dollars for that software just to have it here and say, Hey, I want to come up with a name of a new product. I want you to check that it's available, check the domain check for competing products, check the trademark registry, copyrights, whatever. I want you to come up with a new word that's kind of like a mix between Nike and uh, prego tomato sauce and you know, whatever. And, and it just gives you some ideas, right? So So these kind of ideas, I think are gonna come out of the woodwork. And they're going to surprise us as to how delightful and fun they are. I would love to see somebody create a dolly version of a screenplay writing software where it just gave you ideas on what should happen in your screenplay or character ideas. Uh, what if there was one that wrote jokes and comedians could say, Hey, I want to write a joke about you know, my friend Chamath, and I want it to be about a sweater and I want it to be about his time in Italy. And it says, Oh, yeah, I got it. Boom. I've listened to every episode of All In. Here's all the Chamath quotes. Here's some jokes for you. Or here's some stems of jokes that you can work off. All right. I think all that's coming. So great question. All right, let's take another question. This one's from Jack J. Cal. What are the qualities that most attract you to founders and people in general? Okay, so for founders, pretty obvious. I like people who can build products. Uh, I like people who can hire amazing talent and inspire them to build great products. And I like founders who are obsessed and hardworking uh, and just put in the time to make great products to delight customers. So they have to have a founder, uh, the founder has to have a certain obsession with not only product and team, but also an obsession with the customers. And that tends to lead to success. Now in terms of people, I like people who are fun and who are loyal and who are kind and who are generous. And now that doesn't mean everybody in my life, you know, is off the charts and that I maintain friendships, acquaintances, business relationships, and, and of course, you know, even friendships with people who maybe are flawed in those regards. But that's the standard I try to hold myself up to I like to be the most loyal friend anybody's ever had. I like to be the most generous friend. And you know what, it's worked out for me, you know, sometimes I do get burned, I'm generous to somebody I give them a lot of time, I give them a lot of energy and it doesn't reciprocate. But by having this philosophy in life that I'm always going to be the best friend out of all my besties, I'm going to be the most loyal, hard working for them and really think about them and, and try to be, uh, you know, a, a really, a really strong friend to them. What has happened to me is over time, uh, I've just developed wonderful, deep friendships with people that are meaningful. And I always feel like I never feel like I'm imposing upon anybody or using anybody. And I I do feel like sometimes people are trying to use me and uh, it's okay, I, I have this other group of friends who are my real friends. And then I've got acquaintances and people who use me and you know, are transactional, and that's okay, too. I just put them in the transactional bucket as opposed to the hey, these are my good friends who I want to hang with and just, you know, watch an episode of Th- South Park or go, you know, make a steak and have a glass of wine, right? It's just different buckets of people. And I think it's important to define who you are, and how much of a good friend you are and then you know, try to pair yourself with people who reciprocate in that way. All right, here's a question from Bob G, the OG Bob G, why do you think many companies fail to integrate acquisitions effectively into the core business? What are the most successful acquisitions in your opinion? Well, I mean, it's obvious uh, what happens, uh, the company gets acquired, and then the acquiring company tries to tinker and screw with it. And then they drive the founders out and it goes sideways. Now, there's a balance here. Sometimes the founders might not be bringing it or they're not as ambitious as they need to be. You'd have to ask yourself, well, why did I buy it? Of course, most people consider YouTube, Instagram, WhatsApp, amongst the most uh, amazing acquisitions of all time. I also think PowerPoint was acquired by Microsoft. And so these have really uh, been a creative to those giant companies. And if you look at Instagram, you look at YouTube, double click by Google comes to mind, those were all done in a way to not screw them up, but also to integrate them intelligently. So PowerPoint did become part of the office suite, Apple made the greatest acquisition of all times. In my mind, I think if you look at all these the $400 million acquisition of Steve Jobs, you know, they they said they bought next, they bought Steve Jobs, right? So that was a $400 million signing bonus of the greatest CEO and greatest product creator in the history of mankind, uh, in my mind. And so well done. I mean, Adobe bought Photoshop for 35 million. I mean, they're buying Figma for 20 billion, they bought Photoshop for 35 million in 1995. And they've milked that ever since. Instagram, I mean, Facebook tried to screw that up, they tinkered with it and screwed with it. But they still have shepherded it to over a billion people. For me, if I look through all of those putting aside Steve Jobs, which I consider recruitment, I would say that YouTube, if YouTube was an independent company right now, I think it would be on the way to a trillion dollars. I think it's a little bit limited inside of uh, Google, in terms of ambition and the value creation, I think if it was unlocked, they would be acquiring a Netflix or acquiring, they would have acquired the James Bond rights, they would have acquired the NFL, they would have been more aggressive as a company, whereas, you know, with Google alphabet as the parent, you know, got two layers of, you know, ambition there. Uh, And I think they should spin it out. I think Google, should spin it out for their shareholders they won't but uh, boy would that be an amazing thing yeah, i think every i think they would um they would double the value of google by spinning out youtube eventually within like five years or something i think it would be unbelievably accretive to shareholders great question